0: The rest of us, we're going to be over in Luke chapter 19. There is a parable and there is a story that goes before it. And they do kind of work with each other. So we want to make sure that you, you get the, the best of both of them. Last week we were looking at bad attitudes and parables because parables are filled with people with bad attitudes. We want to make sure we learn the things from that. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and review all that. But bad attitudes are the result... Of me being ruled by my flesh nature. Me being ruled by selfish desires. Or being ruled by a need to be exalted above others. You probably put some other things in there too. But those are some of the main ones. We can get those uh, flesh desires just coming up on the inside. We can become selfish. We can want to be exalted instead of exalting other people. That will pull you into a bad attitude get those bad attitudes going on, just know something is wrong. Let's get ourselves to fix it. When a bad attitude shows up, I have the problem. Don't blame it on the people around you. If we don't change the bad attitude, I can risk the negative outcomes that are in the parables. I don't want those negative outcomes coming into my life. And we're going to look at something in this particular one here today that uh, has some shocking things to it, but I think we'll all be able to handle it pretty pretty well in Luke chapter 19 verse 1. Let's begin reading there. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now he's been on his way. If you go back into 18 and 17, you'll see that he has been on his way from Samaria and Galilee coming through there. And now he has passed through Jericho. It said, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now here's some things you can learn about Zacchaeus right off the bat. First off, remember short people? All right, this is a short person here. He is very short but I want you to notice this about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is very... There's a lot of things Zacchaeus is good at. We only have a few verses on him, but I want you to see some things that he is good at. First off, he can size up a problem and he can come up with a solution in an instant. He doesn't rely on other people to come up with a solution for him. And He doesn't blame other people for being in the way. There's not one time in there he says, if all these tall people get out of the way and let me through, I could see this. He doesn't ever blame anybody for this. He doesn't even get a bad attitude. What he does is he sees there's Jesus. This is what's standing in my way. I can't change how tall I am. But he begins to look where Jesus is going. Jesus is going that way. All right, let me take a look at that way. He's looking for a solution. He's not looking at the problem. He's looking for a solution. And he finds one. He sees a tree. I can climb a tree. Now, how humble of a man do you have to be if you are short And you want to see something and you're trying to keep as much prestige with you and the crowd that is there because you have a tax collector job. I'm going to climb a tree. How dignified does that look? He doesn't care. I want to be there. I want to see Jesus. He's not even trying to talk to Jesus. He's trying to see Jesus. That's all he really cares about doing here. I just want to see Jesus. Now, what's very interesting here. Is if you were to go back into Luke chapter 18, how many know that Luke chapter 18 occurs before Luke chapter 19? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable. You'll know this parable. He gives a parable of a rich man and a tax collector. I'm sorry, uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And you remember the, the parable he has the Pharisee, Pharisees before the altar and said, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. <laughs> no, I'm, I am righteous. And then he comes over to the, to the tax collector. I am not even worthy to, to be here. Thank you for saving the sinner like me. And Jesus asked the question, which one went home saved? Isn't it interesting that Jesus gives a parable? of a Pharisee and a tax collector and compares which one was saved by their attitude and then he runs into Zacchaeus. How many know that Jesus knew Zacchaeus was going to be there? I don't think it's any accident that in Luke chapter 18 he gives this parable and in Luke chapter 19 we meet a tax collector. Not just any tax collector, a chief tax collector that means people in that line of work saw this guy has great potential. And it may be that he knew he had great potential and he could solve things, he could do things, even when he was a kid. But people began to look at him, you're short, there can't be anything good that comes out of you. And they decided, we're not going to give you a shot because have we I mean, anybody ever looked at you for an outward thing and said, well, outwardly you have this, therefore... They're not going to be any good for us. Because of something outward, they'd already decided that you could not produce what they needed. Zacchaeus probably had run into this a lot lot of times and finally just decided the only thing I can do is become a tax collector because they don't look down on me because of my size. So he took on this, this occupation. If you have that kind of an occupation and people if they did actually look down on you for all this could you have some hard feelings to them and now you're a tax collector could you see a potential problem so he climbs up the tree I'm going to see what's going on here we see that the crowd prevented Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus because he was short there were height issues But today, the crowd still prevents people from seeing Jesus. The crowd of people that are around, they have preconceived ideas. They feel that the church is too exclusive, too demanding. That God is condemning, the church is condemning. The Bible has too many contradictions. I'm not good enough. I've been too evil. I want to be more evil. I want to party. I have friends in hell. I'd rather go there. See, there's things that are going on in the crowd that are keeping people from seeing Jesus. Much like this Zac- Zacchaeus had a physical problem with it, but sometimes people have a spiritual problem. Let's go on, verse, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He didn't need to be introduced, he knew exactly where to look for the man. And knew his name. I think he had inside information. That this was going to happen. And he looks up at him and says, Hey, I must stay at your house today. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Now as a sinner, take a look at this. I want you to see this in this verse. As a sinner, Zacchaeus shows more obedience than most Christians. He's a sinner. But Jesus says to him, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So what does Zacchaeus do? So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. How many times does God tell us to do things and we question him? Well, do I need to do that now? Well, what if they don't want me to say that? We come up with excuses. But Zacchaeus did not. Jesus spoke to him. He didn't say, I'm not worthy of you coming over to my house. I just wanted to get a chance to see you. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say anything like, well, I don't have anything prepared. He just says, nope, come on, let's go. We're going to my house. No questions, no excuses, no reasonings. And he does it joyfully. He's glad to do it. I wrote this note down for me. It would seem the main reasons why many Christians don't obey without questions, excuses, and reasonings is due to the joy they have in disobeying. He took joy in obeying. When we take joy in obeying, it changes our disposition. When James writes to us and says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations, he wants us to Find joy in obeying. Even though you're going to find some tribulations. You're going to find some encounters. Verse 7. But when they saw it, when they saw it, they all complained. They all complained. Didn't seem like anybody was left out. They all complained. Saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, or look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the commands that Jesus gives to people when they're asking him questions about different things you could do to miss God he said tax collectors don't collect any more than you're supposed to that's one of the things he said to him it is always assumed of Zacchaeus that he was dishonest in the taxes but I want you to take a look at what Zacchaeus said now remember I told you a few things about this guy he's no slouch he knows how to solve problems he knows how to foresee things it tells me a lot about them because I know people like that and they have a certain way that they carry themselves and a certain disposition about themselves. He said, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. That doesn't sound like it's a done deal, does it? If he was as dishonest as people assume... Why would he put an if in there? There'd be no reason to have an if. All we got to say is, everyone that I took more from than I should have, I'll fix it. That's all he would have said. But he said if. We assume that he is rich because he was dishonest in taxes. But it could be that he is rich because he knows how to invest his money. Because he knows how to foresee things. He knows how to come up with a plan and he knows how to execute it. He doesn't need everyone else around to do things. He can get it done. That may be why he's rich. A lot of assumptions are made about Zacchaeus. But he said, "If I'm, I'm going to go through the books here. This is how I read it. I'm going to go through my books and I'm going to find out, did I defraud anyone? And if I did, I'm going to fix it. Now think about this. If this man had defrauded everyone and become rich, how is he going to give away half of his goods to the poor and still have enough to take care of restoring fourfold to everyone that he took more from than he should? That math doesn't work out. He's not as dishonest as people think. He's not as dishonest as the people around him think. It's unfortunate for Zacchaeus is he knows he's not as dishonest as everyone around him thinks. And it seems like he lives his life in such a way. Even though they think I'm dishonest, I'm not going to live that way. He just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he saw who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus, Coming to your house. I'm going to hang out with you for a little while. The people around there are complaining they did not have joy at seeing one come to Jesus. They wanted him all for themselves or they just wanted him to stay away from the people they disliked. You ever run into people like that? I don't care if you hang out with me, just don't hang out with the people I don't think you should hang out with. Jesus never condemned him for any sin, but he decided, you know what, if I have any sin in this area, I'm going to change it. The world expects us to condemn, to condemn them. They expect us to throw condemnation their way. But Jesus demonstrates what God desires for us. You don't have to condemn people for their sin. They already know. But show them the love of God. Also, you don't need to be tolerant of it either. Being tolerant of people's sins does not mean that they're going to be comfortable to receive Jesus. The Pharisees were tolerant of people's sins. They didn't convert many people. Jesus wasn't tolerant, but he wasn't condemned. There's a difference between that. Our goal is to live a life where we don't condemn those that are living the wrong life but we're not tolerant. One of the things you, some of the things you can remember when you're dealing with people that are outside the fold. Zacchaeus may not have been completely lost. He may have had a heart for God. Other people may have kept him away from the synagogue. They may have kept him away from doing things that he wanted to do. But know this about the, the gospel. You do not have to make God's way more acceptable to people. Don't make excuses for God. Whatever God said, this is the way, this is the way. This is how you get there. You cannot make people believe in God. No matter how hard you try, you cannot make people believe in God. They have to do the believing themselves. You are not qualified to condemn. We are to be a light in the darkness. That's what we're called to be. Be a light in the darkness. Say the light, but don't have to condemn people for it. Now, let's get into the parable. That's that's what comes before this parable. This is the parable of the minas. Now, sometimes people will make comments on the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents and say that they're very similar or some will even say that they're the same. He gives this parable before he gets to Jerusalem and teaches some things on the end times. He teaches the talents after he arrives in Jerusalem. Not before. Why would Jesus give two parables extremely similar right back, right within uh, a week or two of each other? Why would he do this? Got to be a reason, right? Easiest reason is whether well, he's teaching two different things. If he's teaching two different things, don't take the same message from both. Something different here. Let's take a look at this. Verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, we don't have to imply. We don't have to go away and pray and fast and figure out why did Jesus teach this parable? Because he tells us. Here's the reason why he's teaching this parable. This parable, the purpose for this parable is two reasons. He was near Jerusalem. That means he's not there, right? He's between Jericho Jerusalem, he's on that road that the Good Samaritan was talked about. He was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Isn't that what they're all thinking? We're getting ready for Jesus to be king. We're getting ready for the kingdom of God to come in. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That's our main character there. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Well, There was a similar situation in that day to this parable. You can go into history and you can uh, uncover some more about this if you want to. But there was a particular ruler, nobleman you might say. His name was Archelaus and he had a palace at Jericho. And he made a trip to Rome. He left his interest in the hands of his servants. And he made a trip to Rome. The purpose was for him to receive the kingship. But the citizens of Israel didn't want him to be king. So they sent a delegation after him to Rome to make a case to not make Archelaus king. They were tired of kings. They were tired of Herod and some of the things he was doing. They don't want this anymore. So they made a case to not have Archelaus become king and they won. And so Archelaus was not made king of the region. He was not given that title. So then he came on back and uh, and it says when he came on back he called all his servants together and made an account for what they did while he was gone. That's the setting. That's something that had happened right there in Jesus' day. And then Jesus speaks this parable now, this was a nobleman. He's not a king. He's not ruler over them yet. Why not? Because he's on a journey. He's going to become a ruler over them. They don't want him to be a ruler. So there are servants of the noblemen in this story and others are just called citizens. They're citizens of the country for which the nobleman comes from. But they're not in His service. They're not servants of His. Now, the number 10 is, is symbolic in the Bible. You can look this up on your own if you want to. I'm going to tell you some of the things that are in there. The number 10 in the Bible is used 242 times. The designation 10th is used 79 times. 10 is viewed as a complete and perfect number, as is 3, 7, and 12. Now, I don't know if this is stretching in any, but I'm going to read this off to you because this is one of the things that is written about number 10 in the Bible. And it makes an interesting point for our story here. The number 10 is made up of 4 and 6. If you add 4 and 6 together, you get that. You could also say, well, if you add 3 and 7, you get that too. And I understand that. But if you add up Four and six, you will get ten. The number four in the Bible represents physical creation. All the things of the physical creation. You go back to the creation story, you will see the number four depict this. The number six, everybody know what number six represents? Man. If you put the number four and the number six together and get ten, and you use it in relation to a story of rulership, you could come out with the meaning then in rulership, God is saying, rulership over man and creation. Now, doesn't that jive with who Messiah is going to be? It's not an interesting point. I just thought I'd read that out there to you. In Genesis chapter 1, the phrase God said is used 10 times. I did not count them out. Someone else did. We all know God gave 10 commandments. A tithe is a tenth of our earnings. Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the first month. Also the day of atonement is the 10th day of the 7th month. And you can go on with all the different things that that happen in the area of of 10. But but what we see here is when he's calling these 10 servants, it's not necessarily trying to say, well, there's just 10 servants that he's calling. We're looking at a number that represents a complete group. This is the group that is there. And this is the group that are servants of God. The ten servants represent all those who would be servants of the nobleman. So Jesus is telling them through this story that he is not going to Jerusalem to set up a kingdom, but that he must go away to receive it and bring it back. Parts of our story here, we have the noblemen, the kingdoms, the servants, the minas, the citizens, the faithful servants, and the unfaithful servants. That's all of our our, uh, players that we have in this story. Let's continue on. Verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Now some people make a little bit of a stink because he only says, good servant to the first one and not the second one. Did you notice that? But take a look at this verse 18. The second came saying, "Master, your mind has earned five minas. likewise he said to him," which means what? He said the same thing to the second one, except that you also be over five cities. That's the only thing he changed. That's how I read it. He still saw the faithfulness in the in the servant, but He gave him five cities because he earned five minus. Now what that means is our position in the kingdom that our master is going to receive is directly proportional to what we accomplish in this life. Now think back to the workers in the vineyard. The ones who labored in the vineyard all day. Who produced more? Probably the ones who got there at 6 a.m. And your production decreases as they stay in there later. But that had no impact on what they received. All they had to do was be in the field. Because as far as salvation is concerned, you just got to be in the field. But if you want a position in the kingdom, that's a little different matter. How many want a position in the kingdom? (laughs) Yeah, we want a position in the kingdom. Absolutely. And he's apparently not hurting for them. He gives ten right off the bat. Here's ten cities. Here's five for you. He's apparently got plenty to give away. He's not concerned with, uh, well, you know, let's, let me find out how many faithful ones we have and we'll divide it all up. He doesn't do that. First guy comes in there. Hey, you get ten. You get five. So we see seen here that equal gifts yield unequal rewards resulting from unequal faithfulness. The one who produced five obviously was not quite as faithful as the one who produced ten. Why do you say that? How do we know that? Well, obvious, it's obvious because the first one he gave ten cities. The second one he gave five cities. So who do you see as more faithful? Well, the second one. So if he saw them as more faithful, then that's, that's how we would, we would see it. If he saw them both as equally faithful, there's no reason to change. Give him Ten Cities too. I think I put this in your outline for you. What we do or did during his absence will determine our position in the new kingdom. While he is gone, what we do will determine our position. So get busy. Now, what is a minor? In the in the world where Jesus was, a mina was considered to be about a hundred denarii, hundred 100 days' wage. That's uh, roughly what's there. But still, what is that for us? What is a mina? I wonder. In your in the Bible, pulled up Romans twelve three. I wrote that reference out there for you, so you can check this out. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Each servant of God receives a measure of faith. You could put it this way, in terms of the parable, each servant of God received a minor. You have the same measure of faith that everyone else turned out with. But some people are doing more with that measure of faith than others are, aren't they? Verse twenty. Then another came, saying, "Master." Now we had the first one came, the second one came. Why don't we say the third? Why don't we say the last one? Just another. Then another came. Hmm. I know sometimes we when we emphasize something. Oh, you should have seen that first one. That first one, oh man, that was. And then the second one. The second one, I mean, that was almost as good as the first one, but that first one was something else. But that second one, oh boy, that. then there was another one that came to Just kind of showed up. Another came saying, Master, notice what he calls him. Master, here is your mina. Now keep this in mind. This is going to help you understand some things. Master, here is your miner, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. Now there are people I, there are stupid people out there all over the place. In the body of Christ we have stupid people too. There are stupid people out there and they try and teach something along this line. God is an austere man. Because that's what Jesus taught us right here. That God is an austere no, God didn't. God is not saying, Jesus is not saying that God is an austere man. Or that the Messiah is an austere man. He is simply saying out of your own mouth I will judge you. And that's how God will judge people. God will judge people out of their own mouth. He does not need the world to know the truth to judge them. That's all he's saying. How can God judge the world when they don't know the truth? He doesn't need them to know the truth. He's going to say this. I'm going to judge you on what you didn't know. It wasn't right. But I'm going to judge you on it. The world is out there. And they say they believe certain things. God says, fine, that's what you believe. Let's judge you on the basis of that. He doesn't say, he does not have to bring him up to the truth of the Word of God to judge them. No, I can just judge you out of your own mouth. You say, that I have, let's, let's read it again, out of your own mouth, I will judge you. He's not saying he's judging him out of truth. He's saying out of his own mouth. So there's nothing about this that He is saying his truth. Out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. Now, if he's a wicked servant, what's going to come out of his mouth? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you have wickedness in you, what's going to come out of your mouth? Then why in the world are we taking words that this man is saying as if it's teaching us something about God or the Messiah? Out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew, you knew, this is what you say you knew, that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. That's what you think. If you really thought that, if that's what your belief was, you would not have taken that talent and buried it in a handkerchief. You would have given it to the bankers. You would have had a ghost. If you didn't want to work with it yourself, you would have put it somewhere so that I could have reaped something that I did not. If that's truly what you believe, people are going to be out there and they're going to be saying, <clears throat> "You know, I didn't do anything really bad, so I don't think I'm going to go to hell." Well, out of your mouth, mouth, I'll, I'll judge you. What's really bad? I mean, we could just go and through all the list. Was this bad? Well, no, that wasn't bad. Oh, all right. What was this bad? Oh, uh, that was bad. <laughs> I mean, eventually you're going to come up with something that, yeah, that, that was bad. <laughs> All right, out of your own mouth, I'll judge you. See, God does not need to throw things at the world that they don't know in order to judge them. He's going to judge them out of their own mouth, just like he's going to do here. If you really believe that, this is what you would do. Now, I want you to notice in this in this, in this this parable here. Let me go on and read the next one. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minor from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given from him who does not have. Even what he has will be taken away from him. We'll go over all that other stuff there in just a minute. To bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Mm-hmm. Now this is a wicked servant. This is a wicked servant. What happens to wicked servants? What happens to the wicked vineyard owners that the master gave the vineyard to? What happened to those wicked vineyard owners? They were destroyed. They were killed. Judgment will begin with the house of God. And if you look at the overall scheme of things, how things are taught, the church is judged before the world. Because when the, world is, when the church is caught up into heaven during the tribulation, we have the supper of the Lamb and we have all the church being judged during that time. And we will receive the rewards for what it is that we have done during those seven years at the end of the seven years the wicked are judged in fact there's a parable uh, we'll probably get into coming up remember the parable of the sheep and the goats we got the the sheep on one side that's the faithful ones we got the goats on the other remember he turns to the to the uh, sheep when I was hungry you clothed me all those all those things when did we do that? Well, when you did it to the least of these, my servants, you did it to me. And then he turns over to the ones on his left. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, wicked people. Depart from me, I never knew you. And he cast them into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they said, but we cast out demons in your name. Now, list all the things they did in his name. See, they were servants. They had a mina. But they didn't use it the way that it was supposed to be used. They used it for their glory. They used it to bring glory to their name. He said, Depart from me. I never knew you. You had an opportunity, but you didn't take it. And then they'll be judged. See, the great white throne is waiting until after the end of the millennial reign at the end of the millennial reign, all the rest of the rebellious people are going to be added to the group that is already there and there is no judgment seat that a lot of people think there is that you get there and God determines whether you should get in or not that is that never happens There is no judgment seat like that the one in the parable that we just talked about the sheep and the goats that comes at the end of the tribulation. Remember when Jesus taught the Taught to the disciples, be careful that no one deceive you. And he began to teach things about when will these things be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And he says he teaches them in there. He says two will be on a hill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Most people say that's the rapture. Can't be the rapture because they didn't ask him when the end of the church age was. They asked him when the Jewish age would be. There is no rapture at the end of the Jewish age. What happens at the end of the Jewish age? The unsaved people are plucked off of the earth. Those that are saved remain. On, on the hill, the two that are on the hill, the one that is taken, is the unbeliever. Jesus doesn't teach the rapture. He can't teach the rapture. The church hasn't been taught yet. They're still asking about the end of the Jewish age. He's teaching them about the end of the Jewish age. The end of the Jewish age, two will be on the hill. One will be taken. One will be left. That's the separation of the sheep and the goats. He says to the ones on his left, depart from me. The ones on the right, enter in to your rest. We're going to go through a thousand years ruling and reigning with him, at the end of which Satan is released. And then he is allowed to deceive the nations. And he will deceive some who will rise up and come against Jerusalem and they will fail in that battle. At the end of which, the great right throne will be opened. All you have to do is be there and your fate is sealed. It's over. If you show up at the great white throne judgment, don't ask where you're going. You are on your way to the lake of fire because that's what comes after the great white throne judgment, not hell. All those that are in hell are taken out of hell, brought before the throne, and then they're cast in guess who the first two occupants of the, great, the of the uh, lake of fire are? Antichrist and his prophet. First two occupants. They get in there first. And they got a whole thousand years to enjoy the place before anybody else joins them. But see, they all got equal gifts here, but they did unequal things. He called him Master but he didn't do his will. Called him master, but he didn't obey him. He did his own thing. Called him a wicked servant. Well, judgment will begin with us. His third servant went and buried what was his master's. If he really saw it as his master's, why is he not put into work? A lot of times what people are not putting what God has to work is because... Well, there can be several reasons. One, whatever I'm doing for God will benefit God, not me. Why do I want to benefit God? I want things for me. But look at the setting of this parable. In the setting, the citizens of the land hated the noblemen. The servants didn't. But the citizens of the land hated the nobleman. And he gives his goods to his servants and says, do business while I'm gone. What's that mean? That means they need to take the things of the master out into the world that hates him and make a profit. That means people are going to... You work for the master... We hate him. And you could be facing some opposition from the people of the land. If the citizens don't want him to rule over you, do you think they want you doing his business here? And yet, think of the church. Does not the church face a hostile place to do business for the Messiah? We face a hostile place. They don't want him to rule over him. They tried to make sure that he would not be. That that failed. See, why work for the master if I can work for myself? I'd rather bury his stuff. I'll just give it back to him. I'm going to work with my stuff so that whatever I get is for me. But the other ones, they took what was the master's, they put it to work, and they brought 100% of what they earned. It didn't say that they took any part of it. Your mina earned ten here's ten they took nothing your mina earned five here's five but then we got that one when he says why don't you leave it with the bankers why don't you let someone else use the talent instead of not being used for the kingdom you kept it buried what I gave you to be used for the kingdom was never used for the kingdom now only those servants of his received the talent The citizens did not receive a talent. The servants did. But Look at this. Not all the servants make it into the kingdom. Doesn't that kind of sound like not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God? Verse 24. Then he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Now that just sends socialists all over the place in the ticket. They have a hard time with this. They just probably want to cut that part right on out. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minors. He's got enough for himself. He doesn't need any more minors. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, the little bit that he's got, to be taken away. God is not a socialist. There is nothing about our God that is a socialist. Any get that? I, I do. I chose my words carefully here. Any form of government, and anyone who promotes anything remotely like socialism, is not of God. Anyone, I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they go to church. Anyone who promotes any type of socialism in any way pushes for that kind of a government is not of God. They don't know God. Now they could be. They can still get it. I'm not saying they're condemned to hell. Change it. Get out of it. This is not God. God does not divide all things equal. Salvation was because everybody needs salvation. But after that, let's see what you did. You did more than this this guy did good. You did more. I'm going to give you more. Why? Cuz you showed me you can handle it. That's God. I don't like that. What's well, this tough? God's not here to please you. He's not here to line up with what you think he ought to do. I've I've often said this. You know I like Star Trek, but I I don't get as completely engrossed in it as I as I could because I know that there's two things. There's two schools of thought in this. You know there's there's the people who like the the Trekkies. Who's the Trekkie in here? How many people like this Trek? How many people are the Star Wars people? And a couple of Star Wars people. Usually you're one, one or the other. Either you like Star Wars, you don't like Star Trek, or you like Star Trek, and you don't like Star Wars. I saw I don't even know where I saw this one time, but uh, I saw uh, Captain Kirk, um, William Shatner. He got out to do a speech one time and he was doing this, he pulls out the invitation and he, he starts reading about all these things with, the, uh, with Star Trek and all, all the acclimates. You can go up on YouTube, you can probably find it. It's been a long time since I saw it. And then he looks around and he sees all the Star Wars stuff and he goes, well, wait a minute, where am I? And he reads over the invitation. You're invited to give the speech to the Star Wars. Star Wars? And he's giving Star Trek stuff about that. And it was just, it was a great, it was a great little speech. It was funny. Funny as anything. I just sat there and laughed at all that. But usually people are on one side or the other. Now, you may like this, and I may ruin your thing forever. But Star Wars and Star Trek are both socialistic. Entirely socialistic. Star Trek. Is the promise of socialism. S- Star Wars is the reality. I think if you ever go back and watch it, you see it. Star Trek, I mean, everybody's happy. Everybody makes the same amount of money, it seems. Nobody has any needs. Everything is in common. Oh, there's some fighting going on, but you know. Uh, Everybody on the Enterprise, we all get along, right? Star Wars, yeah, not so much. A lot of poverty going on. A lot of people don't have stuff. A lot of things rusted out. We don't have rusted out ships in Star Trek. Everything is brand spanking new. That's the good side of socialism and the bad. There is no good side of socialism, folks. There is not. And you will notice this. Go back into history. Every single leader who pushed socialism was anti-God. Every single one. How can every single one be anti-God if the whole thing is not anti-God? See, the devil loves socialism. He loves people to get into it. Don't buy it. Don't buy the promise. You all know the experiment America was, right? America was an experiment of socialism. That's what it was. It was an experiment of socialism, and it failed. Because when when the pilgrims came on over, they had all things in common. Everybody farmed a plot of land. We brought it all into the pot, and everybody shared out of it, and they all nearly starved. Nearly starved. What was the guy's name? William. Um, uh, I forget his last name. He said, "All right, this is we're gonna we're gonna die if we do this." So he gave everyone a their, still their plot of land. Whatever you get out of your plot of land is yours. You keep it. See, that was the death of socialism, and the birth of whatever you make is yours. It's all, all for you. This is, you get to have it. And so once he did that, then the producers produced. You see, there's no better way to get producers to stop producing than to make them have to share it with people who don't produce. It will stop producing. There's no reason I, why in the world should I work so hard to produce? I'm just taking, uh, letting Bill over there be lazy. I want to do that. Now, if you're lazy... You're going to die. That's motivation. America was an experiment of socialism. It failed. Nearly wiped it out. But they wised up. They changed it. And we changed it to... You know, we're, not, we're not quite what we used to be. The socialism has been working its way in. Every leader keeps trying to work in more and more of it. And it takes away from the economy. You don't want to do that. There's all kinds. I, I mean, I don't care what the Democrat, Republican, they're all trying to bring socialism into it. Everything, Every rule about EPA, you know what that's for? <coughs> it's not letting the free market go. We don't have a free market in this country. We haven't had a free market in this country for a long time. If we did, the economy would be doing a whole lot better. Well, that's your opinion. No, Go back through history and you find out. The more we don't have a free economy, the more we have restrictions on it, The more you have to say, well, you have to produce so many, you have to produce cars that have this much uh, miles per gallon. That is a, that pulls a tailspin all over. No, you should just go over there and just say, Ford, make whatever cars you want. Mercedes, make whatever cars you want. Make whatever cars people will buy. Instead, we're making cars that we have to pay people to buy. That's not not good. Anyway, God is not a socialist. Keep an eye on that. I'm telling you, you'll you'll see it. Go through the Bible. You will find out God is not a socialist. If you're faithful, I elevate you. If you're not, we move you aside. Step aside. We get somebody else. Remember Jeroboam? He was faithful. God elevated him. Then he became unfaithful. What did God say? (laughs) Get out of my way. I'm going to go find another. Elijah was faithful. God elevated him. Then he started getting on this, uh, this thing. Self-pity. God took him out. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been faithful. He had his whole spiel. Goes before God. And God says, look, i got 7,000 people ready to take your spot. You want me We go get one? I'm ready right now. God is not hard up. He can replace you. But he doesn't want to. He wants you to do well. He's giving you all the tools that he can to get you to do well. He gave each one of these the tool to do well. Out of the ten, we only have a report of three. Isn't that odd? By keeping it to the three, I can't come up with any kind of deduction as to how many people are unfaithful. And how many people are faithful? Because don't you know if he had gone through all ten and five of them had been faithful and five had been unfaithful, how many people would be coming out with the stat? Half the church is unfaithful. Half the church is going to hell. Make sure you're in the right half. Our group is in the right half. That group, they're in the wrong half. That would be going on. So we don't know. But what he's telling you is of the people that were faithful, there was varying amounts of faithfulness and productivity. But just because you got a minor, just because you got that faith given out to you, does not mean you're there yet. What are you doing with what God gave you? What are you doing with what God gave you? Now the Jewish people, they considered themselves citizens Of the Jewish nation. But they were not servants of God. They were not servants of the Master. They were citizens. Verse 27. But bring here those enemies of mine. Who did not want me to reign over them. And slay them before me. Look at his wording. These are citizens. He uses that word. I'm sure intentionally. Citizens in the, the Jewish nation were considered to be sons of Abraham. Did they not consider themselves to be on their way to heaven? They surely did. They were citizens. They thought because they were citizens, they would get to heaven. Didn't Jesus say, you think because you're descendants of Abraham that gets you in? Oh, I can raise up descendants of Abraham from these rocks. I don't need descendants of Abraham. I need servants. I need people that will do what the master says, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Why didn't he just slay them before? This is Jesus' parable. Why doesn't, why doesn't he just slay them before and get them out of the way? First off, he went to receive a kingdom. It's not his kingdom yet. He brought that kingdom back. Now, this is my kingdom. Now, You guys don't want me to rule over you? Fine. You're out of here. And he slays them and they're gone. They had all that time to change. They did not change. Bring those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Who do you think he's speaking to? Pharisees. Like I said, God is not and never was a socialist. Please remember from before, grace is not fair. It is by faith. It's not fair. It is by faith. Who demonstrated more faith? Well, the guy who produced 10. Now, last week, those, or last week, two weeks ago, those who may have produced the most but had a bad attitude were sent away. But here we got these, these citizens. That I, don't, I don't want him to rule over me. They're gone. Now, did you read the bulletin cartoon? In case you're wondering why that is, why in the world we have a non smoking section here? Because many Christians are in the smoking section. There's a whole lot of Christians in church that are in the smoking section. In other words, you're going to get smoked. There's a burning coming up for some of them Christians because they may see themselves as citizens, but they're not servants. And some of those who became servants were unfaithful with what God had given them by putting in a handkerchief. Don't get in the smoking section. Be in the non-smoking section. I want to be in the place I don't see the smoke of hell. Now the nobleman here in the end he was more into get this character making than money making. This nobleman was more into character making. He's trying to make character out of the people that he gave the minus to. And one guy resisted. Now all the other parables that we've looked at so far, when there was money lost or money that was forgiven, it didn't bother the master at all. Never once did it ever bother the master to have forgiven a great debt or to see money that was lost. Never bothered by it. Understand this in this parable. He doesn't care how much money each one made. He cares about how much faithfulness they demonstrated. I don't care if you only got five. I don't need the money. I need you to be developed. I need your character to be developed. That's what we need. That's what he's after. From this parable, this is the thing we need to realize. We need to realize the importance of preparing ourselves for a greater responsibility in the new kingdom. When you look at your life down here, don't look at just what, how many minas am I producing for him? Am I a mina guy? Am I a mina guy? What am I? What am I doing? Don't look at it that way. Look at it, what am I preparing myself to be able to do in the kingdom to come? Don't be concerned with what you produce as what you become. It's far more important that you become something than that you produce something. You look at the parable of the ten virgins. We didn't go over this one. But that parable was about being prepared, being ready by the things that they had. This one is about doing what you need to be doing. If you are doing what you need to be doing, you will find yourself ready. So many of Jesus' parables, it's about us in this life Doing what we need to be doing, making preparations, getting ourselves ready for what is to come. Are you getting yourself ready for what is to come? Are you building your faith up? Well, I've been working on building my, I keep having these faith failures. I, 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 step out and it doesn't seem like I'm, I'm getting there. What you, what's happening is you're focusing on the production side and not the development side. God is more concerned that you develop yourself than anything that you produce. Because he he didn't bat an eyelash at the guy who produced ten or the guy who produced five. doesn't care what you produce. He cares what did you develop. I'd rather be someone who looks over two, three, five cities than the guy who had the handkerchief. I don't want to be him. Stay out there. You... And make yourself into something. Now, we have one more parable coming up because just in a short period of time, Jesus is going to teach the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, everyone is given something different. How does that jive? And we'll have to wait for that until next week. But here in this one, each, each one of these, he's trying to emphasize a point. The one with the vineyard, get in the field. Get in the field. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Accept the invitation from the Master to get in the field. If you get in the field, just get in the field. You're going to have what you need. You're going to have the day's wage waiting for you at the end. Salvation is yours. Now, once you're in the field, everyone everyone has been given a measure of faith. Now, get that faith to work. Work that faith. Don't worry about messing up. Don't worry about, well, what if I would have lost that? Master's not concerned about losing losing it. He's concerned that the servant put it to work. Well, I can't do what this one's doing over here. You don't have to. You need to do what you need to do. What is before you to do? I can only be faithful with what is in front of me. What he's saying is, if you will practice faithfulness, with what you have and with what's in front of you. You will develop what is needed on the inside. Would you all stand up with me? Father, I thank you that you have given to each one of us a measure of faith. We can either take that measure of faith and we can bury it in a handkerchief or we can put it to work. We can have it doing things for your kingdom. We want it to be doing things for your kingdom. We want to serve you. You are the master. And we serve you. We show that we love you by doing your commands. Father, we want to do your commands. We want to live the life that you told us to live. I thank you. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you have poured out on us. That you have considered us worthy to receive a measure of faith. That you have seen us as servants and not just citizens. In a country. And the Father, you have given to us things to use for your kingdom. So I thank you. And we will make the most of what you have given us. We give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Well, we have some uh, more teaching coming out for you. Uh, Monday, you'll see the, the links get posted. But if Uh, hoping to get more of you just in the habit just go to the YouTube channel it's already up there on the YouTube channel went back to an Adrian Rogers one of course this is an old one because he's from long ago but I had this, this one from him and it talks about counterfeit Christianity the reason I pulled that one out is sometimes we can look at things like this and say boy how do I know that I am not just a fake Christian how do I know that I am not a counterfeit Christian and so this is a nice short one. Last couple of weeks, you know, we had two from Jeremy and then three from Brother Keith. And I know that took up some time for you all if you went through and, the, and you listened to them all. But when they have a series like that put, put together in a I don't want to separate from you. I just want to put them all out there and, and you can go and listen to as much as you, as you want there. And I hope you found them useful. So this is a lot easier. Uh, Brother Rogers, he doesn't preach for more than 40 minutes. And it will be, be a little bit shorter for you. Uh, hoping that you can... You can enjoy that. I like. Uh, I, I told you before. He and I were we're not on the same page on all of our doctrinal issues. I still like them. but we're not on the same page. I did listen to a few things on end times. I would highly recommend that if you find something that pops up with Adrian Rogers on the end times, I would move on. I I would. We are in very different, very different schools of thought on end times thing. I heard. I listened to a couple of them. I said, Oh no, So. Word of warning. If you want to go out there and listen to him, fine, go right ahead. Go right on ahead. But, um, I I, I wouldn't do it. But I like him in some of the other things. Thank God, in order to be fec- effective here in the world, we don't have to be right on all the stuff. Sometimes, you know, well, all right, he's off on this a little bit over here, but, uh, you know, that's Steve. He'll, he'll get it right eventually. <laughs> and I, I surely hope to. But, um, Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed that one from, from uh, Brother Rogers. On, on Wednesday, as I suspected, it's going to take us, it took us more than uh, one week to get through 14. And we spent some time on, on this. Ended up on the two witnesses. How many are the two witnesses of Revelation? And uh, we're going to show you a correlation between some of the things that's in Zechariah and that particular thing there. I hope you, uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, hope you get to enjoy that. But this week, I put a little bit of a heads up in there. as what's coming up. I'm not sure that we will finish it all. But we're going to take a look at something that came out in a prophecy that caused the people of Jesus' day to have a hard time and caused many to stumble. We're going to look at why that happened and how it also happens today. In the area of prophecy. So this uh, is an important lesson for us to learn. We're going to get into that on Wednesday night you can make it out we'd love to see you. if not you have all the uh, places that you can tune in on that or just tune in later on and we'll have them for you we have the class goes on after service here today uh, the, the book class so if you're going to be sticking around for the the uh, book study class people have been doing with my wife that's going to come up after here uh, just let us know on your way out that you're heading heading back here and picking that on up and don't forget ladies the cutoff day is coming up soon We would love for you to be able to go to the retreat if you are able to. Have a great rest of your day and bless some of the people that are around you.